Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Uh, we are coming up now to the 21st anniversary of 9-11 um, and it's pretty crazy. My family only actually just got to the World Trade Center, to the Freedom Tower uh, a couple weeks ago. My kids were a little bit all over the place this summer and we had a few weeks where everyone was home together and um, we were going to do some of the old stops that we've gone to before. And I said to my husband, we've never actually gone to the Freedom Tower. Um, I think when it was first finished, there was sort of a sense of it's going to be so busy. Everyone will be going. It took so long to uh, get built. And then, I don't know, life just got in the way. So um, we got to go to the Freedom Tower. We saw the 9-11 Memorial. Um, I had heard that there were pools uh, to memorialize, uh, you know, the deceased. Um, but they were actually so moving, uh, these pools, because they're kind of like waterfalls. They're water falling into more water, which just evokes a lot of emotion, which is exactly how you'd want to feel um, in a place, uh, you know, of destruction, you know, of uh, the greatest terror attack on the U.S. Um, and, you know, what we'd like to do on this show is talk about uh, current events, things that are on the minds of, you know, just everyday folk and um, connected to an orthodox connection. So we have a fascinating guest with us today. Her name is Rachel Krauss. She's managing director and partner of Doable, a brand strategy and marketing collective. And her work actually um, had her running up the retail parts of, uh, you know, this whole Oculus area and the multi-acre uh, development um, that we got to visit now. So Rachel, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So I guess first, um, let us know a little bit about your Jewish background. Um, where did you grow up Jewishly? How did you grow up Jewishly? I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, like small, small little town in Bergen County. And uh, it's actually interesting because at the time, Teaneck was not that Jewish. Uh, there was a big cross section of uh, different ethnicities and different races and different religions that were represented. I think over time, Teaneck has morphed in certain ways. Um, but I grew up in a modern Orthodox family, um, one of five kids, and um, had a very, very strong, I would say, traditional upbringing, coupled with a very uh, important emphasis on being a member of the world and a, and a member of society and uh, a contributing citizen to the global world. So my dad was professionally involved both in Jewish education and psychology and in professional theater. So there was a convergence and a collection there that I was, it was normal to me to, to be a rabbi and then to be on Broadway. That was like a very normal juxtaposition for me growing up. And I would say that that was, I think, one of the anchoring values uh, for both of my parents in, uh, in bringing up all five of us about um, kind of this uh, relentless commitment to Jewish identity and um, and to and to practicing and uh, in terms of all the rituals and faith and values and that coupled with bringing who you are into the world and uh, and finding your finding your spark finding your passion finding where you belong um, and marrying both together in a, in a relentless and, and uncompromised way. I love it. Well, you're a perfect guest here. Wait, now you just said your father was on Broadway. Uh, yeah, my dad was a my dad was a Broadway producer. He um, produced the Fantastics, which was um, the longest running musical in the world, longest running show in America. And he was the associate producer of the Fantastics. I grew up as a as a young kid. Uh, once a week, once every other week, was in theater with him, and he would design 
other shows and would uh, work uh, directing and on lighting design and on uh, with the actors. So he has a quite a quite a robust background in theater and in drama. Very cool. I actually just heard about him a few days ago. I had no idea he's your he's your oh, father. All right. That's well, so funny. Uh, the next uh, he next is. have on. Uh, very cool. Um, and I guess we should also mention that um, you don't only have this corporate position. You're also a Revitson, so you're also uh, involved in kind of both worlds simultaneously. Yes, absolutely. So my husband and I are both part of the clergy at KJ, which is a modern Orthodox synagogue on the Upper East Side, and uh, we're involved in teaching and pastoral leadership in giving shirim and sermons and meeting with people and life cycle events. So we're heavily involved on, on the communal aspect there. And then I do have this other hat, um, 15 years in the corporate space, uh, working in real estate development and retail for Westfield. And then more recently as the managing director and partner of Doable, which as you mentioned, is the brand strategy and marketing collective. Um, and it's a hard hat. Your other hat is a hard hat because you did spend a lot of time on site as uh, this whole campus was getting rebuilt. What is your secular education to prepare you for uh, your uh, secular professional work? So I went to Stern to Sisim's School of Business for undergrad and studied marketing and actually double majored in marketing and music and ended up going to Juilliard to finish up my music requirements. So I, um, I have Kind of experience hit both uh, Sisims and Juilliard, which is not a typical mix. And then I did my MBA at NYU. Very cool. Um, and so before, like, where were you professionally before 9-11 happened? Um, like, were you, I mean, first of all, I guess just the first thing is that um, the rebuilding didn't happen so quickly. So um, I know that's something that just, you know, kind of being in New York or being in this area here, we kind of waited a while, it seemed like for, um, you know, something to happen. So when, what company were you at? And, you know, so what was the timeline of your, you know, professional career versus nine, uh, not 9-11, uh, the World Trade Center and the Freedom Tower and the Oculus getting rebuilt? Like, if you can walk us through that. Sure. Yes. So I was actually a student when 9-11 happened. So it was pre, pre my professional uh, engagement or pre-professional involvement. And so I was a student at the time, and as everybody knows, everybody remembers exactly where they were when they found out about uh, 9-11 and when it was happening. I was actually in Israel at the time. And, uh, but as a, I would say, uh, growing up in New Jersey, but as a, you know, kind of a New Yorker in, in proximity um, with family members and community members that were, that were either late that day or there that day, um, it, it, you know, and, and like with the rest of the world, it, it shook, shook everyone to a core. And uh, you know, as I mentioned, I was in Israel for the year that year and uh, when, it, when it took place. And in terms of Westfield's involvement at the time, Westfield had acquired a lifetime lease for retail for World Trade Center about a month before 9-11. Huh. They finalized the lease. And that day, our head of development was killed in the attacks um, and because he had actually gone back in to help uh, retrieve some some other team members um, made it out safely, and he was he was killed. Bruce Eagleson was the uh, was our head of development at the time, and I when I started working for Westfield a number of years later, there was always discussion about that they had right of first offer uh, to come back onto the World Trade Center project. And as you mentioned, it took a long time. There were a lot of complexities. There are many different stakeholders, and um, a lot of question about what was what was the right thing to do with the space. So it wasn't for a number of years. 
that Westfield finalized their land lease again on that space with uh, the right of first offer. And I came onto the project at that time. I'd already been with Westfield for a number of years, running different projects in the U.S. and globally on special projects. And it wasn't until uh, 2012 that we finalized our lease and that I came on to run um, and to lead the marketing efforts and pre, pre-development and business development efforts on that project. So, okay, 2012. So it was nearly a decade of just trying to figure out what to do in the space or when you came on 2012, like some things had already been built. I don't remember so clearly how long things took. I just know it took a very long time. It took a long time. I think there was a there was um, a commissioning of, of kind of public opinion, um, some building designs. Uh, there was also, you know, the just in the aftermath of 9-11, the years it took just to clean the site and, um, and to just uh, properly make, uh, make a space that was even viable um, for, for any type of redevelopment. And, um, and there was a lot of pushback and there were a lot of complexities. Uh, one of the complicated parts of the project um, which I think is actually also an incredible value proposition, is that it is a, it is a public-private partnership. So you have the Port Authority, which is there, and then a number of private stakeholders as well, including Silverstein, and at the time, um, you know, Westfield and Durst came on. So there were a number of, uh, of stakeholders involved and making sure that every, every person, every organization, the public, um, members, like family members of victims, survivors, that there was a sense that what was going to be built and constructed and conceived was going to be on point and deliver for all of those different stakeholders. So it definitely, it certainly took a long time uh, with a lot of thoughtful preparation and intention that went into it. It's interesting. I just, um, I mean, it's 21 years also since the Sparrows bombing, which um, I just wrote about recently on JewInTheCity.com. I was there. Uh, we were about to get lunch there, um, one of my close friends and I, and we just decided we didn't like how the pizza looked that day and left the restaurant. And a little while later, we heard the boom. Um, and then I realized I basically like never talked about it. I think one of my kids had never even heard about it. Um, then a few weeks later was 9-11 and my husband was in Manhattan that time. And then it was, we were like in our first year of marriage and we were both calling each other within a few weeks of, um, you know, two different terror attacks that we had both survived to let the other one know that we were still alive, which is just highly traumatic. Um, and but I'm thinking about how, um, you know, in Sparrows, they just, I don't even know what they put there. Um, I, maybe there's too many attacks in Israel to turn everything into memorial. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about sort of, um, you know, I mean, I guess 9-11 was just on a different scale, a different scope, and that's why something had to be done like that. But I don't know if you have any thoughts. I feel like as Jews, as people that spend time in Israel, um, this is a space where there are, unfortunately, this is not uncommon. So is that anything you have any opinion on about sort of what should be done with a space after a terror attack occurs? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. It, it's um, So that year in Israel was also the height of the Intifada. So I was actually in a terrorist attack also on December 1st on Ben Yehuda Street. There were two simultaneous uh, suicide bombers, one at Cafe Rimon and the other one in Kikar Zion with a, uh, with a car bombing that took place about 15 minutes later um, after all of the first responders had arrived and were on the scene. Another bomb had gone, was detonated about a couple minutes later, um, uh, car bombing. And it's interesting for myself, when I, every time I go back to this day, 
I make the bracha, so I, I personally memorialize it in a very profound way. I do think, and I agree with you, that um, the, the reality of Israel and life in Israel and living in Israel, um, there are too many stories. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, blood that has been spilled in, in many areas. Um, but I do think, though, that this notion of either personal memorial or marking something is incredibly important. We, I, you know, even like tracing throughout Jewish history and going back to biblical times, anytime there was a, a moment and an interaction, there was a rock, there was, you know, something or a, a name of a place that then anchored what the experience was. So I think that that is an available option. And I think something that is highly impactful and valuable when it comes to grieving or when it comes to memorializing and when it comes to resilience and forward motion and thinking that we have an arsenal of tools that do that, that includes this notion of identifying and marking a spot where something monumental took place. And whether that happens on an individual scale, on a national or a global scale, it is something that I think is important to do and important to interact with. Totally. And what you're saying about there being a second bomb uh, when in the Cafe Ramon uh, attack, it was that fear of there being a second bomb, which there wasn't in the Spiros attack. But once we heard the first boom, we began running, but realizing that we didn't know where to run to safety because let's say there's a second bomb, um, right. you don't know which direction to go to to be safe. So it was definitely um, a terrifying uh, moment. Um Tell us um, something about, you know, you said there was a lot of thought um, in the designing of how many acres did you say? 16 acres um, in the, the yes, space? Yes, it's a 16-acre complex, which is essentially divided into equal halves. There are eight acres, which are devoted to the footprints of the original towers, what you were describing, the reflecting pools. So the waterfalls that have this constant, both auditory component and then visual component, that there's this kind of endless flow that happens and that takes place there. So the reflecting pools, a lot of thought went into what, what that design, what that experience was going to be. And the fact that it's multi-sensory. So it's not something that is just visual, but it's something that you can feel and you can even feel splashes of water when you're close enough and you can feel, um, you can kind of even feel the vibration of the water. And then of course the visual um, component as well. So there were a lot of thoughts that went into the design there. So the eight acres consists of the original footprints of the tower, plus the museum and memorial. And then the other eight acres is comprised of what will ultimately be four office towers plus the Oculus. So right now there are three on site and the Oculus and the fourth is under construction, which is tower two. And those eight acres are really about the future of commerce and community and retail and gathering. So within the 16 acre complex, it addresses a very important memorializing of the past and also a monument of perseverance to the future. And the 16 acre complex embodies both of those components and both of those aspects. And there was an extraordinary amount of thought and intention that went into the design, into the flow, into how people will interact with the space. How do you create sacred space within a public space? And mm -hmm. thinking about everything from lighting to construction to how high the buildings are, the significance of, of the um, of who was involved in the design. So every single part of that project was intentional. There is a unique fingerprint in every single inch of those 16 acres. So can you give us some like specifics in terms of, so I was there during the day. So in terms of lighting, is it a different experience to go at night? Is that something you'd recommend? 
Uh, I would absolutely do both. I think that it is uh, the, the light component was a very key part of the development. And I'll, I'll just give one example. When the Oculus was originally constructed um, or concepted by Santiago Calatrava, and there was a very specific intent of the design there, which we can touch on later, uh, about, uh, about the meaning and significance of the design. And originally, if you were to take a bird's eye view of the entire 16 acre complex, all of the buildings are symmetrical. And at the time that included the Oculus. If you take a bird's eye view now, the Oculus is slightly off center. And Daniel Liebskind, who was the master architect of the entire campus, figured out that on September 11th, at the exact hour that the second tower collapsed at 10.28 AM, the light, the way the light worked in the whole complex, that if we rotated the Oculus, the light from the sun would hit and reflect off of the roof of the Oculus and create a perfectly symmetrical beam of light that bisects the concourse. Mm. And they moved the foundation of the building in order to accommodate for that light beam. And to this day, on September 11th at 10.28 a.m., if you stand in the Oculus, a beam of light will shine through the exact center point of the building. Mm. And wow. the whole place is filled with light in such a structured and thoughtful, oriented, curated way that that move alone, that's not the memorial, but that move alone captured the power of the redevelopment, the power of rebuilding, and the holiness and the sacred nature of the site that we are privileged to visit. Um, I feel like talking about rebuilding sounds like such a Jewish, like theme, Jewish concept. Is that anything that, I mean, not to compare uh, the rebuilding of, you know, downtown Manhattan to the Jewish themes of rebuilding of our temple, but a little bit to compare. Um, is that anything that you thought about, you know, sort of in rebuilding after destruction? It just seems like such a Jewish idea, I guess, really through all of Jewish history and especially we have so many prayers and so many uh, so much literature around the concept of rebuilding. Absolutely. And for me, and I, I feel like this was one of the most incredible privileges I've ever had professionally and personally was to work on the World Trade Center project. And I truly believe one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. I was fortunate at, for about eight years to work on that project, um, seeing it from pre-development into uh, it's a kind of delivery of asset and then in the post-development phase as well. And I definitely think you're hitting on, a, on an important truth. The concept of rebuilding, I think also even just the time of year that we're in, there is a, there's a bedrock of the concept of teshuvah, what it means to return. And part of return means to evaluate, it's to assess, it's to survey and to you know, and do this internal examination and, um, and relational examination and what's working, what's not, how can we be better? What design improvement can help us see better? What light facets can we create? I, I often go back to that uh, incredible story with Santiago Calatrava and Daniel Liebskin to think for myself, like if you shift by a few degrees, how much more light can you bring into your life? And if you shift by a few degrees, how much more meaning can you incorporate into your existence? So I think this concept of rebuilding, the concept of return, the concept of teshuvah, I, I think very much fits in congruence with this, with this idea. It's about mapping and survey and reflection and uh, retrospection, introspection and future forward and thinking about 
what it is we want to put out into the world. So uh, to me, I, I almost look at the World Trade Center campus, and yes, the number of years that it took to get there as almost a prototype of, of personal and communal, national and global reflection and, uh, and, and transformation. You seem like a person that's very thoughtful. Um, so I guess, you know, your job as a Rebison, you're, you're well positioned to be uh, inspiring people. Do you bring this Jewish side of yourself to work? Is there a place for you to share these types of ideas um, in a professional manner that is, you know, inspiring, but not line crossing? I know that's, you know, a lot of um, religious Jewish professionals try to figure out how Jewish to be in work, whether it's, you know, um, not really eating at work meetings or feeling embarrassed to unwrap the kosher food or, you know, being more uh, visible about, uh, you know, holidays coming up, kind of how do you balance that? Um, and is there opportunity to bring this type of wisdom into the work that you're doing? Absolutely. To, to me, that these are inextricable links that that are bonded and bound with each other. So the, the value orientation perspective um, reflection and incorporation of, of identity is is all one and the same. So to me, to bring to bring that that thought process or, or ideation lens to the corporate space or to the business realm or to clients is is almost it's almost the same. And I kind of equally draw from the professional world into into the Jewish frame as well. So there's a lot of sharing in the space and a lot to be gained from both. So I think there's a lot of synergy, and uh, if, if it's if it's you know emanates from a place of truth and and integrity, that's all you know marching marching forward continues. So there are no barriers. Um, I think when when we see it as inextricably linked and completely synergized, are there challenges? For sure. Have I personally faced challenges? For sure. Uh, but I think this marching forward um, with integrity and the value orientation and the synergy of both has just been its own propeller and kind of its own starter fluid. Would you say, um, you know, in terms of this is kind of like sharing philosophical things. Um, I assume people at work know that you're Orthodox. Do you, do you think that you break down any stereotypes about Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jewish women, you know, in this leadership role that you have? So I think definitely, uh, definitely on the stereotype, uh, you know, perspective and point, yes, that there are visual cues that I think associate certain people with certain communities and certain communities with certain behaviors. Uh, and I actually, I, I go back to, um, you know, how fortunate I, I am to have grown up with my, with my parents and um, that at such a young age instilled within us just this momentum, go, go forward and conquer, go forward and create, take who you are and bring it to the world. So so, you know, it does it break stereotypes, uh, you know, potentially, potentially. But I think that um, for me, the, the, you know, the driving force is just definitely to, to, to be and to bring whatever I can and whatever toolkit into whatever, whatever community, micro community, professional community I happen to be in. Um, and so, so I think it, there is a certain element of breaking stereotypes um, and then a certain element of just just living and being. And uh, and I think that in and of itself, hopefully, is. Um, a bit, a bit of a boundary breaker that breaks down walls. Awesome. Um, so, for people that haven't been to this space yet, first of all, um, I guess we'd kind of heard people refer to the Oculus before. 
do you know why it's called the Oculus? Like kind of what the, it's very sort of futuristic looking. Um, I guess if you could describe a little bit about like what's in that space and then like where people should go, where, where they should make sure to catch um, if they're planning to make a visit, um, you know, with the, the uh, date coming up. For sure. So in the actual main space of the Oculus, it's um, 16 stories high and wide open space. And I think just to see that in New York City is a sight to be seen and a sight to behold. Um, it's surrounded. There are two levels of retail there, and the retail then splinters out into other locations underneath uh, and throughout the other towers on the campus. There is something about being in the stark white space that is wide open with a skylight and light pouring in. There is something bigger and larger and more significant and more pronounced in, in seeing and experiencing that. So I would encourage anybody who has not yet been, and even if you have been, um, to go back, look up at the at the retractable roof. You can actually see One World Trade Center through there, um, through the roof. So it's a very it's a very humbling experience uh, to be to be in that space. And um, I mentioned earlier, so in Santiago Calatrava's design and vision and ideation around uh, around the design, and yes does look futuristic. And some people think it's like a bron- you know, a brontosaurus and uh, a brontosaurus and from, you know, somehow a lift from uh, the museum on the Upper West Side. But um, it's actually meant to represent a child opening her hands and releasing a dove. And this, the dove obviously representing um, peace and hope and flying and, and, and movement and ascending. Um, and this child opening her hands to release the dove, that was the visual inspiration behind the Oculus. Beautiful. Oh yeah, when we went there and I think I did not know where to look or, or what to go to, but um, definitely uh, these tips that you're giving right now. So this 10, 28 at 9, 11, that's the only time you can see the light exactly through. If we go like on September 10th or September uh, 12th, it will be a little bit off. Like how? Exactly, it'll be, but but by a minute. So uh, so any time of year, I mean, the light at some at some hour will pour in and create a perfectly symmetrical beam of light that bisects the concourse. That happens 365 days a year, but okay. on 9/11, it's at 10:28 a.m. Mm. Very meaningful. So, yeah. So if you go the next day, it might be you know 10:28 28 in a bit, 10:29. But the significance of September 11th is that it's at 10:28 that that light beam breaks breaks through right. the Oculus. Fascinating work, uh, fascinating perspective. And I think really, um, you know, you having this uh, lens through which you see the world, you know, filtered through your Jewish wisdom um, just makes this whole experience and story and understanding uh, that much more interesting. So uh, we thank you uh, for your service, for helping to rebuild, uh, you know, after this destruction and to memorialize, uh, you know, these, uh, these precious lives that were lost on 9-11. Um, and we wish you continued Hatzlacha in your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. And thank you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.